This is hell. Putting people before profits. Hmm, let me do that again. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible, horrible, horrible business model. This is hell. But hey, putting those profits before people worked for the Nazis and their patrons and benefactors, the capitalist ruling class of German industrialists who were their collaborators. So maybe they were onto something. And they definitely were onto something. Things like forced slave labor and running their own concentration camps. Yet, despite the public and financial support for the Nazis, None of those companies that built the Nazi war machine and their tools of human extermination, which were fundamental in the execution of the Holocaust, many of those companies still remain. If you had coffee this morning from a Krupp's coffee maker, your brewing machine was made by a company that openly supported Hitler and armed the Nazi military. And that bare aspirin you took before the Nazi coffee wasn't enough to get over your hangover? Well, that pill is full of a history of Nazi collaboration, too. And I probably don't have to tell you the Nazi origins of your cute VW Bug or your Mercedes, do I? Okay. I think I just did. Yep, the Nazi war machine still plugs along, and it's because they or their capitalist class of owners were never held accountable in a court of law. Sure, there were some trials of Nazi collaborating German industrialists parallel to the Nuremberg military tribunals, but you probably didn't know that because just like the economic system that empowered the Nazis, they have pretty much been erased from our recognition of their role in Nazi history. And the exaggerated fear of communism in the Cold War allowed those Nazi collaborators to continue to exist with impunity. In a few minutes, we'll have a conversation with award-winning writer, editor, and journalist Erica X. Eisen, who posted the Boston Review article, The Other Nuremberg Trials 75 Years On. Failures in prosecuting the businessmen who profited from the Nazi war machine show just how far post-war Europe and America were willing to go in the Cold War quest to protect capitalism. Erica is a reader at Granta and an associate editor at Hypocrite Reader, which you can find at hypocritereader.com. She's currently working on her first novel. Find out more about Erica at her website, Erica X Eisen, E-S-E-I-S-E-N.com. Follow her on Twitter at Bishkek History. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. And, of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how has your week gone so far? That's good. I'm in the clear. I can't afford nothing German. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing you can afford this German. Does uh, Target sell uh, name like no name brand versions of any of those things <laughs> made in Germany? Absolutely not. So yeah, I don't know if I can have anything German made in my home either, unless it's some really old toy that was probably actually built by Nazis. I forgot to tell you the most frightening thing that happened to me last weekend, Alex, when we went camping. On the way home, we're on the interstate doing somewhere between 70 and 75 miles an hour, just a bit over the speed limit, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, on both sides of us came eight motorcyclists who were all easily passing us. They had to be going, at the very least, 90 miles an hour. That's when the bike that gets closest to our car, so close, I could have reached out the front seat passenger side window and easily 
touch the rider. At that moment, that biker closest to us, going 90 miles an hour at least, pops a wheelie. None of which is all that frightening, except when he did pop that wheelie, he almost lost control of the bike with the back wheel wobbling like crazy. Almost, almost going out from under the rider. But they regained control, steadied the bike, and went on speeding through traffic and in between and around cars, ignoring all you know, lane indications. If the, if the rider had lost it, I would not have done a show this week because a biker, and potentially their bike, going through the front window at that speed would likely have killed me. Especially because the only thing protecting us from him were our airbags, which had been recalled. So thanks to my girlfriend who yesterday got our recalled airbags replaced before we go travel again this weekend. But more important than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? Stay on two wheels out there, everybody. <laughs> oh, my God. I've nev- I mean, I've seen people pop wheelies before, but not at that speed and not almost lose it. It was scary as hell. This week's question from hell is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Motorcycle helmet wearing. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Uh, you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. It's so late in the show. Let's just send it to alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff takes us to the depths of glory. Alex, will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again this this week's question is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? We got an email from listener Tynan this week uh, who writes, Hi, Chuck. I seem to remember you saying during a past show that you'd be open to recommendations about topics that This Is Hell should cover. Well, I don't have a particular guest in mind, but I do have a recommendation for a topic. I've been following the rather breathless euphoric news coverage of Exxon's board being shaken up by the so-called activist hedge fund engine number one. The media consensus seems to be that this is a huge victory in the fight against climate change, but I would love to hear a more critical analysis, or at least an analysis that isn't so deeply credulous. (laughs) Perhaps it's too soon for anyone to have written anything worthwhile about the Exxon example, but perhaps you could have find a guest who's written about activist investors and whether they can actually force terrible companies to change. Thanks for all that you do, Tynan. That is a fantastic topic suggestion, which, I mean, because when, when that story broke and everybody seemed so ready to declare it a victory that somehow through market forces, Exxon could suddenly be at the forefront of fighting climate change, I was very skeptical and Tynan's correct in being very skeptical as well. Here's what the New York Times reported about Exxon and Engine Number 1. Wall Street has seen its share of strange bedfellows, but a recent alliance of investors that took on ExxonMobil was unprecedented. Last week, an activist investor successfully waged a battle to install three directors on the board of Exxon with the goal of pushing the energy giant to reduce its carbon footprint. The investor, a hedge fund called Engine Number 1, was virtually unknown before the fight. 
The tiny firm wouldn't have had a chance were it not for an unusual twist, the support of some of Exxon's biggest institutional investors. BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street voted against Exxon's leadership and gave Engine Number no. 1 powerful support. These huge investment companies rarely side with activists on such issues. So, if BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street are supporting Engine Number no. 1, they must be up to something, and it ain't as great as climate optimists are making it out to be. So, listeners, if you do have a suggestion for a guest who can give us a critical analysis of this kind of activist investor approach to fighting climate change, please email your suggestion to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com, a direct message to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can message it to us via Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up, Nazi collaborating industrial capitalists got off scot-free for the most part. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week, and we will have Jeff Dorton in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff takes us to the depths of glory. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell the international military tribunal held at nuremberg in germany immediately following the end of the second world war is famous for being proof positive that international law can bring the worst of the worst war criminals including those who planned and executed the holocaust they can bring those people to justice but there was another tribunal you may not have heard about the tribunals of the industrialists yes those who promoted financed supported and then profited from Nazi Germany were also held accountable in a court of law. Kinda. Here to tell us how capitalists and capitalism played a key role in the rise of Nazi Germany award-winning writer, editor, and journalist Erica X. Eisen posted the Boston Review article, The Other Nuremberg Trials, 75 Years On. Welcome to This Is Hell, Erica. Hi, Chuck. It's so great to be here. You can find out more about Erica at her website, ericaxeisen.com, and follow her on Twitter at Bishkek History. You start by writing on April 14, 1945, as a group of American soldiers were leading him down the road in the village of Wittbrook. German steel magnate Albert Vogler bit into a concealed cyanide capsule, collapsed against an armored car, and died almost instantly. He had told fellow industrialist Friedrich Flick, Earlier that year, I am ready to take part in the reconstruction of Germany, but I will never let myself be arrested. Across the country, businessmen were doing the same thing. Siemens alone saw five of its board members kill themselves as the Red Army advanced through the streets of Berlin and capture its factory. Why did they so fear being arrested? What might be so much more frightening than that you'd want to kill yourself instead of being arrested? Um, right. Well, um, I think it might be the first instinct of people to read these mass suicides as an act of compunction or a realization of guilt. Um, obviously, we can't ask these people why they did it, even though this show is called This Is Hell. We can't ask the denizens of hell. Um, but I would push against that interpretation. Um, first of all, I think we need to put the suicide of industrialists 
at the end of the war in the context of a larger suicide wave uh, in Germany that took place at that time. Um, Hitler Youth, for example, gave out, uh, notoriously gave out cyanide capsules at the final performance of the Berlin Philharmonic uh, before the fall of Berlin. Um, and this wave of suicides was you know, caused by a couple of reasons. Uh, one was demor- demoralization at the death of the leaders. Obviously, Hitler killed himself. Uh, Hitler also, Goebbels, um, and many others, as well as their, their families. Um, there was a sort of cult of the glorification of suicide. Both Hitler and Goebbels gave public speeches before their deaths in which they said that um, a defiant death was better than a life uh, in ignominy and defeat. Um, we can see in this sort of a connection to Nazi ideas of, of masculinity, of, of men as, as warriors, and in that context, um, and you know, also in an industrial context, which is, was at that time particularly a masculine field, you can see why uh, people would see uh, life as intolerable. And I think the last reason that is very important is a, a genuine fear of uh, repercussions, right? Um, fear of the Red Army in particular, um, fueled by, uh, you know, years of propaganda, which had uh, painted Slavs as animals, as not only politically inferior, as, as communists, but also very specifically racially inferior. Um, there was genuine fear of, of mass murder or torture, as well as um, legitimate fear of rape. There was uh, mass rape that took place as uh, the Red Army invaded um, uh, Germany. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, the real fear there was um, being held uh, accountable for their actions, um, not only through potential violence, but also through uh, legal proceedings that they saw as intolerable, particularly because they would have been meted out by people who they thought were um, genetically inferior to them. And you point out that those who were to stand trial were supposed to be people from, like, executives from Krupp, IG Farben, Daimler-Benz, Volkswagen, and elsewhere, whose companies had collectively smelted steel for tanks and purified aluminum for gun barrels, formulated the synthetic rubber and gasoline necessary for tires and engines, built airplanes and U-boats and V-2 rocket circuit boards, and manufactured nerve gas in Zyklon B. So the pharmaceutical producer IG Farben no longer exists, but its many successors include BASF and Bayer in purchasing uh, Bayer or BASF products or Krupp or Daimler-Benz or Volkswagen. Are we supporting the companies that physically created and profited from Nazi Germany? And if so, what explains to you why citizens of nations that pride themselves on supposedly defeating fascism in the form of the Nazis still buy Bayer Aspirin, Krupp Coffee Makers, or Daimler Benzes, or VWs? Um, I have to say, I, I do feel um, discomfort in uh, supporting these kinds of, of companies. Um, but as for, for why um, people would support them after the war, I think this uh, really owes itself to the weight of the Cold War. Um, in which the actions of these corporations were recast um, not as a sort of uh, conspiracy with Nazism, but as sort of an unfortunate scenario in which 
business people were doing the best they could, doing, you know, pursuing their quote unquote legitimate, um, you know, uh, goal of profit. And, um, you know, they had the misfortune of, of doing so in a, a Nazi context, right? Um, after the war, um, there becomes an increasing uh, worry that the trial of industrialists would, um, number one, allow for sort of a broader criticism of uh, capitalism or allow for broader discussions of socialism. It's partly for this reason that um, the original uh, planned international military tribunals of industrialists end up falling through and um, the various occupying powers end up pursuing their own separate trials rather than, for example, the U.S. collaborating with the Soviet Union. Um, But, you know, also to that point, uh, we start to get things like um, uh, a real concern that uh, a weak uh, Germany after the war might uh, become communist obviously east east germany was communist but um you know at this at this time the country had yet to be partitioned and so um it becomes very attractive to americans to have a strong industrialized and thriving capitalist uh germany as sort of a counterbalance to the soviet union and um to that point there's a real concern that if they do aggressively legally pursue industrialists, then these companies will be unwilling to participate in American-led rebuilding processes. And it should be noted that uh, the industrialists themselves were extremely aware of um, the degree to which the Cold War weighed on the minds of their American occupiers, to the point that they would write letters to um, you know, police officers or military officials who had brought them in for questioning about their wartime activities, saying things like, um, "This, you know, questioning of me is extraordinarily stressful. It's bad for my uh, my mental health. It's bad for my physical health, and in turn, it's going to be bad for the reconstruction of Germany." And so. These industrialists end up playing a really canny game where they tie their own legal fates to the fate of the entire country and indeed to the capitalist world. So why would German industrial uh, industrialist capitalists, why would they support Nazis? After all, it wasn't like Hitler was, you know, practicing a free market of economics. It's very much not a free market, especially when it comes to labor. So why would capitalists invest in the Nazis? Right. Um, so to that point, I think it's useful to uh, go back to, for example, uh, the Treaty of Versailles. So um, the Treaty of Versailles, as I'm, I'm sure your listeners know, uh, mandated that Germany disarm after uh, World War I. Um, so, for example, they weren't allowed to have tanks. They weren't allowed to have uh, military aircrafts. Um, they were allowed to have um, uh, certain types of armored vehicles, but only used for police, you know, a bit of a loophole there, and no kind of heavy artillery. Um, and this was seen um, uh, not only as 
a national shame, right? Um, the fact that uh, Germany was having its power stripped of it, but also obviously by private corporations who were profiting off of producing war material, it was seen as a huge um, financial hit. So just to give one example, um, Coop, which becomes one of only three companies to be tried for its World War II activities, um, in the aftermath of the Treaty of Versailles after World War I, it's limited to producing only one type of gun. And amongst those, it can produce only four of those guns per year. So the company ends up relying a lot on government support and also on producing things like typewriters, like baby prams, and it ends up essentially being cut out of a hugely lucrative market. And so from that, you can see why a ton of industrialists who, for example, were related to coal manufacture, to steel manufacture, um, to chemicals like Fab and later would really bristle at this kind of um, control by the outside and really quickly um, during the 1920s, so well before the rise of uh, the Nazis, um, they entered into secret um, efforts with the government of Germany to basically rearm the country um, uh, illegally, right? So, for example, the government um, entered into a contract with Coop whereby um, they would produce U-boat parts in Holland and then secretly ship the parts back to Germany where they could be reassembled. Um, Daimler-Benz uh, shipped what they called heavy tractors, which were actually tank parts, um, to the USSR, to Kazan, actually, um, for assembly and testing. Um, and the government also helped to fund uh, aircraft manufacturers uh, move their location to Denmark so that it could be monitored by um, the international community. And so all of this creates what Telford Taylor, uh, one of the American prosecutors, calls the unholy trinity of Nazism, militarism, and um, economic imperialism. Um, I would also add to that that um, the Nazis themselves um, framed Nazism as the only alternative to communism. So there's a very infamous meeting, secret meeting, in 1933, just a couple of weeks before the um, infamous election that would lead to Hitler's rise to power. Um, this meeting was held at Goering's uh, residence. Hitler was there, and some 20 industrialists were there, um, including Farben leaders, uh, Siemens board members, uh, numerous CEOs. Um, at this talk, Hitler gives a speech in which he argues explicitly that democracy and democratic values inevitably lead to communism. So he has a quote, and I apologize in advance for polluting your airways with uh, Hitler's words, but he says, private enterprise cannot be maintained in the age of democracy. In other words, um, socialist elements, unionist elements will inevitably triumph, according to him. And so in order to defeat the communists, which would have been the common enemy of both private enterprise and the Nazis, it was necessary in order uh, for the fascists to gain complete authoritarian control over the German government in order to produce 
what they consider to be a um, a positive environment for private industry. Um, after this speech, it should be noted, uh, Krupp thanked Hitler and expressed gratitude to him on behalf of all German industry. And after this, Berlin gives a speech in which he says that upcoming election would probably be the last election in about 100 years, right? That this um, election will sort of end all elections and inaugurate the um, the Third Reich. Um, at the end of this meeting, what is the result? The result is that the party collects over 2 million marks from that meeting alone um, from people who are present. So I'm not quite sure what the um, calcul- calculation in today's dollars is, but millions of dollars from the people present there alone. Shortly after this, we know Hitler comes to power and Gustav Krupp, who was at that time the head of, of Krupp Industries, he writes a letter to Hitler um, in which he proposes the reorganization of the German economy specifically in order to allow it to function best in conjunction with Nazi rule. He makes clear that he agrees with the aim of fascists, and he states that his goal in organizing this plan was, and I'm quoting here, rationalizing the economy and raising its efficiency so as to make it an effective instrument of industry within the framework of national socialist schemes. So what we see here is that not only did these industrialist leaders see fascism as a potential um, uh, arena in which they could succeed, but uh, Nazis were trying very hard to make them see that it was potentially um, the arena in which they could succeed best, and perhaps even the only arena in which private industry could, full, to, could flourish to its fullest extent. So did German industrialists, did they have a choice? Weren't they just simply intimidated, bullied into, forced even, maybe at gunpoint, to actually open up their factories and to collaborate with the Nazis? Was there any kind of force or intimidation that made, made it so they didn't have a choice? Yeah, this is uh, this is a really important question. Um, this is precisely the line of one of the lines of defense that a number of these industrialists would take when they were tried. You know, we didn't have a choice; we feared for that, for our lives. Um, if we look at the facts, what we see are is um, at no point, for instance, did the German government mandate the use of slave labor, right? This is one of the, the most uh, heinous crimes uh, for which uh, a number of these uh, corporate heads stood trial. At no point was that mandated. Um, they argued that it was necessary to use slave labor during the war in order to achieve their, um, their quotas. What that leaves out is that these companies often had leeway to set their own quotas, right? And so there is an eagerness to profit to the fullest extent possible that leads, for example, Krupp to um, create its own subcamp at Auschwitz so that it could best manage what to them was virtually a free and disposable labor force. It made um, Farben uh, cite a factory I think less than a mile away from Auschwitz, 
um, in order to best take advantage of, um, again, a captive labor force. And so what I think this narrative of force alights is the real readiness that these, with which these companies pursued the elimination of labor costs for instance, or the pursuit of, of lucrative contracts to make, um, you know, supplies for the army. Um, one last point that I would make there is that perhaps the most famous uh, line or principle to come out of the um, the IMT, the, the first and most famous of the trials at, at Nuremberg of, of political and military leaders, is this idea that just following orders is not an acceptable legal defense, right? This is often um, considered, um, you know, the the guiding moral principle that, that emerged from these trials. It's very interesting to note that in the case of these industrial leaders, what we have when we look at the decisions of the judges was a complete willingness not only to accept without evidence the assertion that um, the assertion of force, but to accept um, this idea of just following orders, not merely as a mitigating factor, but as an exculpatory factor. And this hypocrisy was noted by uh, Paul Herbert, who was the only dissenting justice in the Farben case. He notes this explicitly in his dissenting opinion, in which he basically excoriates his fellow justices for very conveniently reversing the principles that just a, a few months before had been promulgated in that very courtroom. And as he notes, the logical conclusion of a just following orders uh, line of thinking is that the only person responsible for the Nazi terror regime was Hitler himself. That is really amazing. And you also point out that tensions between the USSR and the United States were rising, leading to the concern that a collaborative uh, trial might become a wrangle between the capitalist and communist ideologies and the Russians might exploit to discuss irrelevancies. Robert Jackson, who was taking time off of the Supreme Court uh, bench in order to serve on the U.S. legal team at Nuremberg, expressed displeasure at the idea of working with, quote, the Soviet communists and the French leftists on a trial against industrialists. Now, that's the Robert Jackson who was portrayed by Alec Baldwin as a hero in the 2000 miniseries Nuremberg, which is weird because Robert Jackson isn't even a character in the 1961 movie, which was bizarre. <laughs> so was Robert Jackson a hero in prosecuting the Nazis? What do we miss in our understanding of Nuremberg when Robert Jackson is recreated in the media as a hero? I think uh, what we miss in portraying, uh, in, in looking at a heroic narrative is, first of all, the ways in which um, justice is not an abstract concept, um, not some, some uh, good thing that exists outside of our world, but a thing that is made, um, often in, you know, very difficult and dirty circumstances, and that arises out of specific uh, material, economic, and political um, exigencies, right? What we miss when we lionize uh, figures like Jackson, like uh, Telford Taylor, like Dubois, is the ways in which um, they were 
constrained um, by forces outside of them and also by logics that they had internalized, including um, logics that sought to prop up uh, capitalism itself. Uh, one important point that I hope that uh, readers could take away, and here I'm really borrowing heavily from the scholarship of Guiti Bars, who has done great work um, on this subject, is the degree to which the goal of Nuremberg was not uh, the, the industrialist trials at Nuremberg. I mean, it was not so much to put capitalism writ large on trial, but rather specifically to discipline what the lawyers saw as doing bad capitalism. So, for example, there was this uh, widespread belief at the time that um, cartels, large uh, corporate uh, conglomerates, uh, were somehow illib illiberal. And a lot of economists in the United States were evaluating um, the uh, business environments in Germany through the lens of things like the Sherman Antitrust Act, right? Um, so according to them, the problem was monopolies, was overweening power of a couple large steel uh coal or chemical magnates. And if we broke those up, um, then the problem would be solved, right? The problem, according to them, was not private industry itself, but um, the fact that it was done in a way that was uh, not satisfactory somehow. Um, and then just the last point I want to make here, uh, you brought up the sort of heroic portrayal of uh, American uh, jurists. I, I do want to mention that to the degree that there is a popular perception of Nuremberg uh, in the U.S., it is heavily, heavily American-focused and to a lesser extent British-focused. Um, I think it's very important to remember that at the first uh, international uh, military tribunal, not the one that I focus on in my article, but an important legal case nonetheless, the French and the Soviets were also there, right? So they were also um, presenting legal arguments, often wrangling with their um, fellow uh, allied attorneys, right? But this, um, this perception of Soviets either as absent or as, in some sense, uh, vengeful elements needing to be restrained from uh, enacting um, you know, emotional, uh, rash decisions really, I think, flies in the face of, of what was true. Um, Soviets contributed a great deal to the legal theory and framework used in order to prosecute the Nazis. Um, to give one example, Aron Trainin, who was a legal scholar, Soviet legal scholar, was the one who himself pushed for the notion of a crime against peace. That is the idea that uh, war crimes are not merely what happened during the war, but that aggressive war itself constitutes a crime. And this was adopted into the Nuremberg Charter itself. Um, I also want to push against this notion that um, is often put forth in American uh, writings or reflections on Nuremberg, that the Soviets and the French were somehow biased because of their experiences during the war. I think you see some of that in the statement that, that you read, right? 
um, I want to propose another way of looking at it, which is that the Americans and British, to a lesser extent, instead of being seen as rational and unbiased, might be seen as instead inexperienced. While, whereas the other parties, the French and the Soviets, especially the Soviets, who were invaded and occupied uh, by the Germans, had experience and knowledge of precisely what um, the German uh, military and industrial machine was capable of, right? The Soviets lost an estimated 26 million people during the war. And I think that this is the last point that I want to make here because I, I'm rambling a bit, but this idea of um, uh, an unbiased view versus a biased emotional view, I think is really bound up in gendered ideas of emotions as feminine and reason as masculine, with here the Soviets being portrayed as emotional and illogical and therefore feminine, and Americans as um, somehow logical and therefore masculine. And, you know, just to make a, a connection today, we see precisely this kind of logic in uh, discussions um, about COVID in terms of whether we should weigh human life more than the economy. So I think that um, this heroic narrative is uh, really bound up in a very limited biased, and even, I would say, sexist view of Nuremberg. You were mentioning this idea of that the Germans were just doing capitalism badly, and you write in much the same way as the New Deal aimed to create a gentler and more stable form of capitalism in the form of the welfare state. The ultimate goal of the Americans at Nuremberg was not to attack big business writ large, but rather to delineate what was and was not an acceptable form of big business. Is it possible to delineate what kind of business is acceptable in order to avoid the potential for acts of inhumanity by businesses? Is that even possible to excise capitalism being done badly from capitalism? Um, no, because I think in this case, despite what the Americans uh, wanted to put forth as an argument, what we had was not capitalism done badly, but in fact, capitalism done very well. And that's the problem. So uh, just a few more questions for you. You also point out that the investigations by Robert Jackson and his colleagues were coming up against a very awkward fact. A number of U.S. companies, most prominently Standard Oil, Dow Chemical, DuPont, and General Electric, had significant dealings with precisely the firms whose heads were now poised to stand trial as collaborating with the Nazis. Were industrialists not prosecuted and their corporations' actions not held to account because the U.S. was trying to cover up companies within the U.S. that had also helped, benefited, and profited from the rise of Nazism, that the U.S. capitalist class was also complicit in the rise of the Nazis? Is that why those charges were avoided? Um, yes, to a, to a certain extent. I think that this is a, a really important point. Um, so uh, Josiah Dubois, who was one of the attorneys at, at Nuremberg at the industrialist trial, um, he writes about this extensively um, in his autobiography. He wrote an autobiography, I believe it was called The Devil's Chemists, which was about Farben specifically. Um, he estimated that some 53 U.S. companies had ties to Farben alone in some capacity, whether directly or indirectly through subsidiaries, etc., um, as you as you stated, uh, the most 
prominence, probably the most infamous of these connections, was with Standard Oil. Um, so in the 1920s, for instance, Standard Oil uh, realized that Farben had the ability to create synthetic gasoline. And it was absolutely petrified by this because they realized that if Farben succeeded in manufacturing uh, synthetic gasoline, then they would lose a ton of money. So they created um, this deal whereby, excuse me, Farben would not compete with Standard Oil in the gasoline market if Standard Oil would stop competing in all other chemical markets and help Farben defeat its competitors. Um, in addition, um, Standard Oil entered into what their own sort of leaders called a kind of marriage with Farben in an attempt to get some of the um, recipes or methodologies that it thought were particularly profitable, particularly um, their recipe for synthetic rubber, uh, which they knew would be profitable, especially if uh, a war, which was coming, uh, disrupted trade channels. Um, so in an attempt to get Farben to give them uh, their uh, rubber recipe, Standard Oil basically gave them a ton of their own proprietary technologies. And so what the result was, was that um, Germany ended up with a ton of American uh, technologies, whereas uh, Farben ended up stringing along Standard Oil and not really giving them anything in the end. Um, another embarrassing detail was that when the German army realized that they were not able to buy airplane fuel directly from foreign governments because they were basically a, an international pariah, um, they asked Farben to buy oil for them from Standard Oil, and Standard Oil was um, more than willing to comply. You know, this is just uh, one example, but, um, you know, uh, General Electric uh, collaborated with Krupp. They had a, a price-fixing um, deal on tungsten carbide, which is this um, metal hardener. Uh, they basically colluded in order to make the price 10 times higher than it usually would be. During the war, um, the the material was more valuable than gold. And all the while, if you look at newspaper advertisements from the era, General Electric is um, advertising itself as proudly American, as even quintessentially American, um, all the while helping uh, a German company uh, profit and also in accordance with its uh, agreements with Krupp, uh, refusing to export material to the Soviet Union, who would, of course, later be America's allies. So there's a great deal of um, ties um, between U.S. and German companies in this period. I think one of the reasons why it's been overlooked is because explaining things like price fixing or these sort of patent deals, it's not... Um, it doesn't exactly leap off the page. It requires some some knowledge and some some business know-how. It's maybe not so exciting, but you know, I think this goes to a broader question of who we consider a criminal, who we consider um, uh, culpable. You know, I'm currently reading uh, Mariam Kaba's book. We do this till we free us. Actually, after having heard your wonderful interview with her. And one of the points that she makes in this book is that, um, and I think this is a, a direct quote, rich people 
are simply not punished for practicing capitalism, right? Our concept of an evildoer or uh, a criminal is still fundamentally um, a single person uh, with a gun, a single person with a knife. We still have not, I think, as a society, achieved um, a framework where which we can look at someone with a spreadsheet who is, you know, uh, calculating sales for uh, oil that will go to fuel bombs or um, calculating prices for um, steel that will make tanks or um, Zyklon B that will go into gas chambers. We still, I think, are accustomed not to seeing that person as a criminal when the reality is that they kill far more people than an individual person with an individual weapon. So can the law make capitalism act in a humane fashion and a way that capitalism can be held to some level of justice through the legacy of what happened at the Nuremberg tribunals of the industrialists? Can the law have any impact on the humanity that capitalism should have but doesn't? I think that any law created within a capitalist context is inevitably going to um, solidify and protect the power structures out of which it arises um, to the degree that the um, principles promulgated at Nuremberg, the decisions handed down at Nuremberg were handed down in a capitalist context, they will, I think, no matter the intention, inevitably end up uh, being used either ineffectively or as some kind of uh, shield, right? Um, so I think that, and this is a point that, again, Grichia uh, uh, Bars makes in their writing, um, we need to look beyond writing better international laws to hold corporations accountable or to make them, you know, make kinder, gentler machine guns. What we have to do is start looking at why we are allowing corporations to have that much power in the first place and dismantling that power. Because until we do so, the laws that we create, however well-intentioned, will inevitably redound to their benefit. One last question for you. We have been speaking with award-winning writer, editor, and journalist Erica X. Eisen, who posted the Boston Review article, The Other Nuremberg Trials, 75 years on. You can find out more about Erica at the website, ericaxeisen.com, and you can follow Erica on Twitter at Bishkek History. That's B-I-S-H-K-E-K, History. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's the category your answer is going to fall in for this one. You write, today, many of the companies under investigation at Nuremberg have returned to the fore of the business world, both in Germany and around the world. There remains much work to be done. In fact, Friedrich Flick of Flick AG would later become West Germany's richest person and one of the richest people in, in the world, despite being a convicted Nazi war criminal. So U.S. corporations helped build the Nazi war machine, which people and corporations like Flick supported, benefited, and profited from, and later were revo- rewarded with vast fortunes after the war. So to what extent were the Nazis actually defeated in World War II? That's a great question. Um, I think um, 
to a to a very limited extent. Um, I actually love this question. Um, you know, the the fact that someone like Flick, who you pointed out, could die as one of the richest people, um, one of the richest people in the world. The fact that some of the companies um, who you know were guilty of uh, slave labor could end up uh, supplying the uh, U.S. war in Korea. Um, the fact that, um, you know, today we look upon the um, the rise of, of West Germany's ec- economy as something of an economic miracle rather than, um, you know, uh, predictable and I think lamentable um, uh, resurgence of, of power amongst precisely the people who had helped Hitler uh, rise to the head of the fascist state um, proves that um, the process of denazification was um, stopped far too early. And I think part of the reason for that is because the people in charge of it realized that um, in order to thoroughly denazify um, particularly the, the business sector, they would have to make cuts so deep that uh, virtually no one will be left standing. So uh, to answer your question, did the Nazis um, win the war? Maybe we can say that they won the peace. I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. It's always great having people from Hypocrite Reader on the show. Erica, thank you so much, because this is absolutely amazing writing, and I'm embarrassed to say that I graduated with a major in history and did not know about this. So thank you very much. I really appreciate you teaching us stuff today. Thank you so much. And I just want to say, um, at the risk of uh, uh, sounding a bit a bit uh, silly and sentimental, but I'm I'm a huge fan of the show. And so when Alex wrote to me, I was absolutely over the moon. And um, I want to thank you for having me on here today, but also for all of the work that you guys do. Um, it's really important work that you guys are doing with this program. And I hope that you know it. Oh, my God, you're giving me goosebumps. Thank you so much. That is really sweet. Thank you very much, Erica. I really appreciate it. And, again, people should be checking out your writing by going to ericaxeisen.com. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. If you like what you just heard, especially those those complimentary words, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can support this is hell and you can just subscribe to our regular weekly friday podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell and if you want to help us climb out of that debt please subscribe to tomorrow's patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon and uh, get exclusive access to our weekly patreon podcast which streams live every friday at 10 a.m chicago time podcast shortly after at the same place on this week's patreon podcast With every interview we do, there are always questions I've written that go unasked because of a shortage of time. Yeah, I know, the interviews can be anywhere from 30 to 45 and even an hour long, so you'd think we'd be able to ask everything we want. But think about that for a minute. We talk to people for a half to three quarters of an hour to maybe a full hour, and we still don't get all the essential information we need from our guests. The major news networks interview their guests for, what, three, five, maybe eight minutes at most. And somehow, out of that conversation that is bound and limited by sound bites and soundbite thinking, as a viewer or listener, you are actually supposed to learn something from what was just said. Or who knows? 
Maybe you are not supposed to learn from the major news media outlets. Maybe what they're doing is just regurgitating sound bites and cliches that the audience then uses when trying to understand and describe the world around them. But here at This Is Hell, we are about learning and trying to figure out what the hell is going on and not telling you what the hell is going on. So you can then go repeat whatever we've said in some veiled attempt at political discourse, all of which means on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, we'll tell you what we didn't get to on this week's shows and conversations. We had about the CIA spying on U.S. citizens, people like you and me, and exporting that software to the world. How the war by cowboys on Indians continues to this day, as was seen in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. The killjoy bad news about the pandemic while everyone else is partying like it's 2019. And whatever we didn't get to with Erica in our conversation on the tribunals of the industrialists at Nuremberg. And I'm probably going to be discussing how justice is, doesn't seem to be anything more but something to defend the interests of the powerful. One other thing. Based on our conversation with epidemiologist Rob Wallace this week, we will be announcing news about our 25th anniversary party during our Patreon podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers. The rest of you, you're going to have to wait until Tuesday as we're not doing a show Monday because I will be at a ceremony honoring the lifelong commitment to education of the person who would be my father-in-law if me and my girlfriend ever got married. And we won't. Meanwhile, we're sharing a September 5th, 2009 conversation on how the Obama administration policy toward charter schools was much like the George W. Bush administration policy, which was much like the Bill Clinton administration policy, all of which were very similar to the Donald J. Trump policy, and they continue with the Joe Biden administration. If you want to know what true bipartisan, bipartisanism looks like and how much it can suck, then subscribe to our Patreon podcast. And tomorrow, I'll hear our talk from nearly a dozen years ago with Danny Weil, who had just posted a three-part series on charter schools for Counterpunch with titles like Neoliberalism, Charter Schools, and the Chicago Model, Obama and Duncan's Education Policy, Like Bush's, Only Worse, The Charter School Hype and How It's Managed, and The Future of Charter Schools. And with charter schools growing ever since our conversation with Danny, that future, our present, is pretty bleak for public education in the United States. So tomorrow on Patreon, at patreon.com slash this is hell beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time live and posted shortly after at the same place the questions we didn't ask didn't get to ask this week on this is hell and a reminder of how bipartisanism sucks but you can only hear all of that by subscribing to the weekly this is hell patreon podcast again that's at patreon.com slash this is hell in a few minutes Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment uh, Jeff takes us to the depths of glory. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alexander Jerry. Alex, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners answering? This week's question from hell is, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Uh, during that interview, I was looking up if Haribo had any Nazi ties, <laughs> and I think I'm okay, but I did find uh, this... That's a good point. I did find this fact. Uh, apparently, just used forced labor during the war. <laughs> uh, so, uh, who knows if that means Nazi ties or not? Uh, uh, did, tears are the secret ingredient. Uh, I did find this sentence uh, from a 2017 Atlantic piece. Uh, once This is about Hitler. Once an associate saw him spooning sugar into a glass of fine Gewurzgemeiner and drinking it down happily, Friedland Wagner, the composer's granddaughter and a fervent anti-Nazi, remembered Hitler eating two pounds of pralines a day when he was visiting Beirut. While planning an invasion of Norway, an aide wrote, he kept darting out of the conference room to gobble sweets in his study. When asked if he was hungry, Hitler said, no, for me, sweets are the best food for the nerves. Wow. And that guy got hooked on meth? <laughs> Not saying anything is relatable about Hitler, but uh, 
I could do two pounds of pralines a day if I was under that much stress. <laughs> uh, and how about the math? Two pounds, maybe not. <laughs> uh, so, what virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Paolo S. says, it's my birthday today. <laughs> two thrones says, swag. Is that Paolo S.? Yes. Okay. Uh, Maddie R. says, disapproval of virtue signaling. And Whispering Softly says, being a perfect angel. That's it. I win. <laughs> Those are some pretty good ones. Uh, you still have time to answer. To give us your answer to this week's question. I'll go to our Facebook page. Email it to us. Tweet it at us. And we will read your response. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, keep in mind. All the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is hell. And I know you have. Hefe, on the line. What? Come for the existence, stay for the glory. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Earlier in the year, Chuck read a communication from a listener who seemed to wonder, since any action one takes, with whatever intention, gets co-opted by the capitalist machine that contributes to destroying people's lives, and no one, without exception, has yet been able to escape from the snare, wouldn't it be better just to remove oneself from the earth in order to at least minimize one's bad impacts on the planet and cease the process of feeding the system with well-intentioned efforts, all of which eventually arrive at negative outcomes? I mean, if this really is hell, why should we continue to stay here? I hope that listener has resolved this issue to their satisfaction. Nevertheless, should anyone else be positing similar questions about the value of carrying on? Here are a few things to consider. And believe me, I need to take this mental journey as much as anyone. In the simplest terms, if this really is hell, then the option to leave is a red herring, and you'd probably end up somewhere even worse, or at best, back where you started. And if you survive a suicide attempt, I'm assuming I've been coyly discussing suicide here, though I don't really know myself that well, you will be stigmatized and possibly lose what little freedom you have. And being trapped in a mental hospital at the mercy of a system that's currently discussing bringing back electroshock and lobotomies is worse than what you might be wishing to escape from. I assume everyone agrees that it's possible to do a modest amount of good to improve the lives of others in a small way every day. Someone is in pain right now and you can relieve that pain. That alone, whatever the unintended consequences down the line, is worth the price of admission. Don't beat yourself up for your inability to escape the moral convolutions of human existence. I mean, if you think about it, it's an egotistical point of view. Who do you think you are? Supergirl? Jesus? Buddha? Jimmy Carter? Florence Nightingale? Leonora Carrington? Esther Freud? Esther, daughter of Mordechai? Joan of Arc? Edith Piaf? Zora Neale Hurston? All of them with human flaws, some with pretty lousy ones. Ask James Baldwin about Zora Neale Hurston sometime if you ever get reincarnated into the past, which is likely. What I'm trying to say is, 
It's not humble to think of oneself too far beyond one's immediate effects on the universe. That's how you end up with folks with overweening ambition, like the people I could name who've visited actual, horrible, sweeping, direct effects upon the innocent, like Henry Kissinger, Pol Pot, I assume you get the idea. Even thinking in terms of achievements and direct effects at all. Talking about who's a tyrant, who's an altruist, it's just a bunch of dick measuring. Weighing your results to see if you got a net positive is succumbing to the commodification mindset many of us agree is threatening our species and others as well, not to mention the ones it's already destroyed. I'd like to give a shout out to just existing. Existence gives you something to think about. Stuff to experiment with. An arena in which to rehearse and perform a piece of ground on which to stand and from which to journey hither and yon. Look, existence is full of bastards and idiots, but it's the only place to get a decent taco. The best books we know of are all here. The cutest cat videos, the tallest trees, the coldest planet, the bluest whale, the stinkiest cheese, the most massive black hole. Still discouraged about how little you can accomplish and how badly it can be twisted by the overweening class? You know what the dry drunks say? Give me the strength to change what I can, the patience to endure what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. Something like that. As it is recorded in the Mishnah, Rabbi Tarfon used to say, It is not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. And as good and sensible as that may sound, I say, up yours, Rabbi, you're not the boss of me. Here's my spin on Rabbi Harpoon. Your duty is to realize you don't have a duty. You may take a duty upon yourself, good for you. You may have a duty forced upon you, whether you rise to it or fail is up to no one's judgment but your own. No one is able to dictate the ultimate meaning or lack of it, of a single thought, action, or breath you take. Think about it. It's called enlightenment. Everybody's got at least a little. Lest you think I'm getting too big for my britches, here's something even worse. If you see the Buddha on the road, don't kill him. Just go up to him, pat him on the shoulder, and say, Dude, enlightenment, yeah, you know, Everyone feels that way sometimes. You don't got to make such a big deal about it like it's a jewel in a lotus or something. Man, chill. Consider the Dalanega gold mine. Around 1880, a man with the name of Knight, like the medieval knight, discovered a vein of gold-bearing quartz 22 feet thick running downhill underground at a 45-degree angle, deep, plunging below the level of the water table. And you know what the shaft is called? The Dalanega Glory Hole. Even from as base an activity as the mad search for gold, you can end up with a shaft with a thick vein in it, plunging deep, and you are cordially invited to enter the glory hole. Do you know how much gold can be recovered from that ore? Why, a veritable golden shower! This set of double entendres was brought to you by Pride Month. Where else can a few greedy people 141 years ago in Georgia clawing for their fortune under the earth 
end up with a legacy that might make old queens of today, some of whom have had very difficult lives, giggle. Old queens and puerile essayists. Where else but right here in good old existence? Don't be measuring outcomes. No need to weigh your soul against a feather. That's someone else's tune, Jake. This is where it's all happening. This is where it's at. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. You said duty. No, no, not, no, not really. That kind of, yeah, I guess I did. Oh, my God. You know, um, Chuck. Yes, sir. I once did a, I did a moment of truth on these two guys, Harry Kondabolu and, uh, yeah. and uh, W. Kamau Bell. Yeah. And uh, so th- they're in little conflict with each other, logically, I think. Maybe not. Uh, Kamau has a show called United Shades of America. Yeah. And uh, he's been touting 2045 as the year in which white people become only 49% of the population. And uh, so just a plurality, not a majority anymore. Okay. And uh, right. And uh, but Kondabolu in 2014 had a whole show co- about 2042 being the year that white people became 49% of the population. And I was wondering. You know what? What happened? Who stopped screwing? Who, who? You know, stopped making babies? I think it was the 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 Latinx community because since somebody put an X there, they can't tell the different genders. Oh, Jesus, so, dude. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm looking for an explanation that doesn't implicate them in horrible lies. Well, I think you should continue that investigation throughout Pride Month, Jeff. All right, I'm proud to do it. All right, until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what virtue are you signaling? The person with our favorite answer gets whatever piece of this is hell merchandise they want. Still got one last shot at leaving an answer right now. Alex, please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. All right. uh, What virtue are you signaling? What virtue are you signaling? Adam B. via email says, unrivaled humility. (laughs) Titan S. says, white guilt. David S. says, silence, and it ain't easy. What virtue are you signaling? Joel G. says, truth, justice, and the American way. No Whack W. says, militant decency under the guise of art. Jessica B. Oh, I know Jessica B. Says, still processing the hope and prayer. System is not responding. <laughs> what virtue are you signaling? Just a couple left. Andrew S. Said, oh, that was the Kente cloth one that I, I think is the best one. And then uh, finally, Jeff G. Says, American settler colonial occupiers of Turtle Island exceptionalism by getting my COVID-19 vaccination card tattooed over my heart. <laughs> the answers I liked most were, I did like David, the one that uh, Alex just read, uh, Silence. And it ain't easy. That's a good virtue signal. Jeff Guy or Jeff saying American settler colonial occupiers of Turtle Island exceptionalism by getting my COVID-19 vaccination card, as Alex again just read, tattooed over my heart. I like that one as well. 
Uh, Alex's favorite, apparently, is Andrew S.'s donning kente cloth to kneel in front of my In This House We Believe yard sign, which is really good. Wally R. saying returning the grocery cart to the corral. Nick A. saying using a goddamn blinker because we live in a society which reminds me of relatives I know who are in Boston, and they say that in Boston nobody uses the turn signal because it's nobody's business what I'm going to be doing next. Uh, Kim saying smug composting. I really liked smug composting as well. And Paolo S. saying, it's my birthday, and Alex, I know you really like donning kente cloth to kneel in front of my in this house we believe yard sign. But this week's winner is Paolo S. for saying, it's my birthday. Ah, That is just, that was just so perfect. I really wanted to reward Paolo. Happy birthday. All you have to do is just send us your mailing address and tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Which piece of merchandise you want, and we will get it in the mail to you as soon as possible, Paolo. My answer to this week's question, Mel, what virtue are you signaling? Well, if virtue signaling is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue, then I am virtue signaling everyone else's virtue signaling to feel better about myself. Also, it shuts up people who are talking about stuff that makes me feel really uncomfortable. Thanks, everyone, for sending in your answers to this week's question from Hal. Alex... Do we have any book anybody booked yet for next week's shows beginning on Tuesday? Because I unfortunately will not be here on Monday. Yeah, are we on, and ending on Tuesday because that's all I got booked. So on Tuesday, Max Isle will be on to talk about his book, A People's Green New Deal. Which was a suggestion from one of our guests this week, epidemiologist Rob Wallace. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is if you're going to get drunk, drink tequila. But if you don't and you end up hungover, eat a Mexican brunch, which includes eggs, plenty of salsa and chilies. Thanks to this week's guests, including national security and technology writer and investigative reporter Mara Vistendahl, who wrote the Intercept article, Oracle boasted that its software was used against U.S. protesters, then it took the tech to China. Also, thanks to writer and editor Jacqueline Keeler. Go back and listen to that interview. Wow. Author of Standoff, Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and The American Story of Sacred Lands. Thanks to yesterday's guest, evolutionary epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of Deb Epidemiologist on the Origins of COVID-19. And you can support Rob's work by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at Patreon dot com slash Rob Wallace. And thanks to today's guest, award-winning writer, editor, and journalist Erica X. Eisen, who posted the Boston Review article, The Other Nuremberg Trials, 75 years on. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Egon Sheely for running the board. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. And Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is how we will be sharing the questions we did not have the time to ask our guests this week, whether it's on the CIA exporting spying software around the world, how the Revolutionary War was an invasion of native lands by colonists, why being honest about COVID makes you a killjoy, and whatever we didn't have time to ask Erica about the Nuremberg Tribunals of the Industrialists, as well as our 2009 conversation on bipartisan opposition to public education and an announcement about our 25th anniversary party again 
That's at patreon.com slash this is hell tomorrow, 10 a.m. live and podcast shortly after at the same place. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show and all of this week's shows. Thank you very much, Alex. Alexander, Jerry, there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.